Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. But the principal thing in my mind is, if someone says they got a gun, take me upstairs. Someone says they got a gun, take me to the alley. You can't. Please rise. Court is now in session. Well, I'm very excited for our guests today. We have Chicago trial lawyers, Joseph Power Jr. and Larry Rogers Jr. of Power Rogers LLP. And you can look them up at powerrogers.com. I don't even think I need to spell that for everyone. That's a pretty good website name. Um, And so before I get to telling our listeners a little bit more about you guys, thank you so much for joining us today. We're happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, thank you for being on the show. And, you know, this was this one is really a challenge, Steve, because I was trying to our guests have accomplished so much that I really (laughs) had to kind of pick and choose what I was going to talk about, because um, just so many really important and impressive accomplishments. Um, First, um, let me talk a little bit about Joe Power. He is a past president of the Illinois Trial Lawyers Association and the Inner Circle of Advocates. And I think most of our our lawyers know who that group is. And so you can imagine that the things that are about to follow are very impressive. Uh, Joe is um, has been recognized by the National Law Journal as one of the top 10 litigators in the United States. Um, he's received a special commendation award from the Civil Justice Foundation, Medal of, Excellent, of Excellence from the Loyola School of Law, and I think one of the, his very cool accomplishments is he was named Protector of the Working Man by the Illinois State Crime Commission. Many other accomplishments in addition to that. Um, but with all those accomplishments, as you can imagine, um, Joe has done tremendously well in the courtroom. He's recovered over $1 billion for his clients and has obtained more than 200 jury verdicts and settlements that are over $1 million. Um, the largest jury verdict in Illinois history for a medical malpractice case of $54.4 million. And I could just really go on and on, but I won't because I'm sure he doesn't want me to just talk about him the whole time. Although I will, Joe, if you want, if you want me to. I, I, I do have to mention one of the coolest uh, titles that you got is you were named as one of the 30 toughest lawyers in Chicago. And, uh, you know, that's that's pretty awesome. And, you know, coming from a city like Chicago to be tough there is uh, is really saying something. Thank you. Exactly. And I don't want to leave Larry Rogers out. He is also a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates, which I just can't emphasize enough what an impressive accomplishment in group that that is. But I think for most of our listeners, I don't have to tell them. Um, He works in the area of medical negligence, trucking, products liability and civil rights litigation and of particular importance now and always. Larry works in the area of police brutality cases, and you can read a lot more of the things that Larry's accomplished on uh, their firm's website. But um, one of the cases he's involved with was the the shooting of Betty Ruth Jones in West Chicago in 2015. Um, That might be a little bit more familiar for um, our listeners who live in that area, but really significant case of a a shooting of an innocent bystander. 
and the death of Sandra Bland, um, who was arrested as part of a traffic stop, placed in jail and died in her jail cell. Just these really important cases that need the attention that that Larry gets them. He is um, a frequent participant in these important discussions on TV and the radio. And I don't want to forget that I think some, it might be even more than this now, but from what I could tell, um, Power Rogers was now, y'all are now in your 11th consecutive year in the Chicago Lawyer um, annual settlement rankings for first place. Do I have that right? That's correct. That's correct. That's Very correct. cool. <laughs> um, well, thank you guys again so much for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'll stop. I'll stop raving about you unless there's anything else you want to add, Steve. <laughs> no, no, no. I, you covered it all. I mean, <laughs> no. I, you really, if you want to go on their website, I mean, the, the list of accomplishments is long. Uh, and these are two uh, fantastic trial lawyers who've had uh, just great success through the career. So we're so uh, happy to have you guys on. Yeah. And it's very cool. It's a great website because you can really click on and learn more about the um the cases, some that, uh, many of the res results that we didn't talk about, but there's a lot of information about on there about just these really interesting, important cases. But um, I will go ahead and get into the one that we're here to talk about today, which is uh, McKenna et al. versus Allied Barton Security Services et al. I'm going to do a really brief overview of this case because there's a lot of details that we want to get into and there's a lot of details that I don't want to screw up. Um, but let's start with the basic, very basic background, which is on December 8th, 2006, a man named Joseph Jackson entered a 41 floor professional uh, office building in Chicago, 500 West Madison Street. And Mr. Jackson was a client of a patent lawyer who had offices thing. Um, the lawyer's name was Michael McKenna. And Mr. Jackson was an, invent, an inventor who was seeking a patent and had hired Mr. McKenna for that. And he had thought um, mistakenly that the lawyer, Mr. McKenna, had sold his idea and, and owed him money. And this was an this this belief, this mistaken belief, was something that apparently really... Uh, just festered in Mr. Jackson, um, as we'll talk about. So the, the defendant, one of the defendants, Allied Barton Security Services, ran security for this office building. So for those of you who um, work in the city, work in buildings like this, that this kind of setup is very familiar to you. The supervising security officer, um, another defendant, Sidney Chambers, had seen Mr. Jackson, the, the um, inventor, uh, loitering around in the, in the lobby area for a while, acting strangely, but he really didn't do anything about it. Um, Mr. Jackson eventually, uh, and we'll talk about the circumstances of how this came about, but he eventually um, held or purported to hold another security officer, Robert Brown, at gunpoint and demanded to be taken to his lawyer's offices, um, to his lawyer's floor. And that security officer, Mr. Brown, did not follow many of the, any of the safety protocols that were in place and didn't seem to really be trained on them, didn't utilize uh, any alert codes, didn't notify his supervising officer, and he took Mr. Jackson up to the law office, and we'll talk about it, but it sounds like he even had to switch elevator banks. Um, and, and once there at the lawyer's office, 
Mr. Jackson, the, the inventor, shot and killed the lawyer, Michael McKenna, and another lawyer, Alan Hoover, um, both, of, both of whom were, were fatally shot but did not die right away, um, and also wounded uh, an office secretary, Ruth Lieb. Um, just a really traumatic case. All of our cases hit home, but this one really hits home. Um, so our guests today represented the families of the two attorneys and the legal secretary um, who survived in a case that was tried in 2017 in Cook County, Illinois. There was also a, a, a mail clerk that was murdered, taken, uh, oh, uh, kidnapped and, and murdered as well, Mr. Yes. Goodson. Yes. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. Good teamwork. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the jury delivered a verdict against um, Allied Barton Security Services and the supervising officer, Sidney Chambers, um, and then also assigned some responsibility to uh, Mr. Jackson, the inventor um, who was uh, deceased. And um, the total verdict, the jury's total verdict was $30,650,000. And a lot went into that verdict for the various losses that occurred as a result of these acts. But um, I've done enough talkings, just a tremendous result by you guys. And before we really dig into, I mean, there's so much to dig into the case, but I, I, where I really would like to start is first correcting anything else that I screwed up about that intro. And second, if you guys could um, help paint the picture a little bit more for our listeners about how the office building was set up, where the security officers were, and sort of the just the physical layout of everything. All right. Uh, sure. So first off, there was one other lawyer that was an intricate part of this. this oh, two, uh, others. Yeah, two others. Uh, one of which uh, was Joe's son, James Power. And uh, James, uh, this was a unique scenario where we each got to sort of represent uh, a plaintiff on damages while collectively working together on liability. And James uh, took the lead on handling Ruth Lieb's claim. And uh, as a very young lawyer, got a significant result of over $5 million for Ms. Lieb, right. who had a largely an emotional distress claim. Uh, and that's one of several that he's gotten, actually. He and Joe actually together got a $95 million verdict uh, subsequent to this one. So that's fantastic. Uh, it's very nice to see a young man like that uh, be mentored uh, by his dad, but also get, get some great results. So he has a very promising future in the field. You had a great description of the facts of what happened um, in terms of the layout of the building. Uh, the building was located at uh, on a main street in Chicago called Madison Avenue at 500 West Madison. And in that building, um, on the first level are a lot of commercial commercial uh, businesses, restaurants, stores. Uh, it's a very busy area because it also houses a train station. Uh, so you get a lot of commuters going in and out of the property. Uh, as you go up a level, a level of escalators, you access uh, what's called Metro, again, a commuter system of, of, of rail cars. And then as you rotate around to another escalator bank, you go up to uh, office towers. And it, it's this area where Allied Barton, Allied Barton was responsible for security throughout the property. Uh, but at that area is where check you would check in to go up to office towers and a lot of the most significant incidents occurred. Uh, now there were 
there was notation of Joe Jackson uh, being seen at different levels of the property leading up to that point and acting suspiciously, which I'm sure Joe or I or, I or you will get into. But that's sort of the layout of the property. Gotcha. Yeah. And then it sounded like there was basically they were stationed at sort of um, like an elevator bank. And there's a lot of buildings in Atlanta like this and elsewhere, I'm sure, where you kind of you know, maybe you check in with security or somebody buzzes you in or whatever, and then you get through a gate to be able to use the elevators. Yeah, there'd be reception down on that third floor where you go up to reception, the concierge, and then she would see if your name is listed, she'd call up and tell them that, you know, Joe Jackson is here. And as we get into the facts, you'll learn that he was actually turned away because his name wasn't listed and no one was expecting him. And so he was turned away, left, and then he came back. And that's one of the times that they should have acted because knowing he had turned away, he's now a suspicious person. You shouldn't just let him off upstairs because he didn't have any ID when he got turned away. <clears throat> so that was right. a factor. Yeah. So, um, you know, we talk about these case, we've talked about cases like this before a negligent security case. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you guys about, so this happened in December of 2006 and the trial date wasn't until November of 2017. So almost 11 years afterwards. And I understand that you, uh, had a motion for summary judgment that actually was granted against your clients. And then you had to go up to the court of appeals and get that overturned. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, they granted the trial, the motion judge uh, granted summary judgment saying there was no duty. And so we had to appeal it. And we did it. You know, obviously briefs are filed. I did the oral argument. We got it reversed for trial. So it took a long time. There were, you know, dozens of depositions. Then summary judgment took a long time because we had expert depositions and so all that took some time. And then on appeal, that was the major delay because it was sitting out in the appellate court before the case ended up getting reversed. So unfortunately, we were able to, based on the contract, in their contract, they provided that they would uh, protect the safety of persons. And as a result, the appellate court found a duty. And that's why we were able to try the case against uh, the security company. Right. So the, that, that's what I was wondering. The, so the initial grant of summary judgment was to say that Allied Barton had no duty, uh, I guess, to protect um, the uh, tenants there. Uh, but based on the contract, which I think you, you quoted this in your opening argument, that, it, you had, that they had to protect property and life or something like that Person, under yeah. the contract. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I mean, this is one of those cases. I mean, we... This comes up a lot where you have, you've got multiple defendants and you have somebody who, um, who commits a criminal act. And I think if somebody's looking at it from the very, very surface level, then they think about, you know, the fault of, um, you know, that this is all the criminal's fault, that it shouldn't be the, you know, this, you know, this working person's responsibility that this person committed a crime, um, but one of you made the comparison, you made several comparisons, but one of the ones that um, I liked was the comparison of um, the fox and the farmer. Um, I don't know if you guys remember that, but um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what's really happening 
you know, that might not on the first initial surface of looking at the case, what's really happening in terms of how preventable this really was? Well, we felt it was preventable. It was their whole defense that one way or the other, this fellow was going to kill uh, Mr. McKenna to start. And after he killed Mr. McKenna, he started looking for lawyers. Unfortunately, the clerk was wearing a tie. Paul Goodson, represented by Dan Coden, he was wearing a tie. So we thought he was a lawyer. So he shot him. Exactly. He shot Ruth in the foot. He shot Mr. Hoover in the head. So he was looking to kill lawyers. And fortunately, uh, the police did arrive and ended up being a shootout. Uh, and uh, he was killed. But it was, you know, it was so, so tragic because the fellow had financial problems. He got delusional. He thought somehow McKenna uh, stole his patent and uh, was out to kill him. He, I think he ended up getting very depressed. He became psychotic. And uh, it's just very unfortunate that they didn't act. And part of it is we took their own, like what's called post orders against us. It talks about uh, at one point, Mr. Chambers, who's the supervisor, saw him, he claimed earlier around 11 o'clock, and he thought he appeared lost. So if you see someone who appears lost, according to their own manuals, you're supposed to go up and question them and ask them, are you lost? Uh, you know, are you looking for something? Can I help you? He did none of that to start. Now then it came later in the day, he saw him again. Then the third time he saw him getting turned away. And then the fourth time is when he saw him with Mr. Brown. So all those were instances where he failed to properly intervene. We, we said, now one of the things they threw at us <clears throat> was this, all this, uh, you know, film, security film. And they claimed that he would, through all this film, they never saw him until, you know, right before the occurrence. And so they're claiming basically that Chambers was lying when he saw him at 11 o'clock. So uh, Chambers gave a deposition, but then he didn't, show up for trial. So we were able to pay, pay portions of his deposition at trial as admissions, right? But he, he saw him at 11. So was Cha so Chambers was the supervisor uh, that was there that day. And, and as you said, he had pointed out that uh, he uh, thought he looked like a puppet or something that he had had as a child. That's why he recognized him and uh, or why he remembered it. And that he saw him earlier, you know, saw him leave and then saw him come back, saw him hanging around. And that all these things should uh, um, raise his suspicions under their own policies and procedures. Um, so, but ex explain. So, I mean, I, it sounded like he had gotten fired from his job, but we, was he not represented by Allied Barton's lawyers? Well, he was supposed to be, but, uh, you know, they, he just was left out there hanging. Okay. One of the important things about what Chambers said is they threw all this tape for us and they said, we see Chambers coming in shortly before the occurrence. And that's when they said he was coming in. So, and they said, there's no evidence that he was there previous to that. So they're saying he's coming in later on, one o'clock or so. Then we had our, one of our experts, uh, consultants, not expert, he's a consultant for us, go through all the tape, because they claimed he's not shown on any tape, entering the building, they gave us all this tape. So then we had, because they had all kinds of cameras, you know, they had like yeah. 18 cameras. So we had to go through 18, different sets of film. And then he found someone with a hat on like Chambers and it was pretty obscure. 
like, like Jackson, I'm sorry, like Jackson. And we said, here he is, around 11 o'clock. You can see it. And it looked like Jackson with a hat on. It was hard to see, but that's what we said. Here he is. They're, they're, in opening statement, they said, you'll never see him in the building before, like, uh, before shortly before the occurrence. And then we found it back around 11 o'clock on one of the cameras. So we shot a hole right in that uh, claim they made in opening statement. So that was important to say that there were numerous instances since 11 o'clock that they should have done something and they didn't. So that, that helped us finding that. Right. And and then one of the other claims that where they were violating their own policies and procedures that you pointed out was that, uh, so he, he eventually comes up to the other security guard, Mr. Brown, and says he has a gun uh, and wants him to take him upstairs. And, and, and when he does that, the supervisor, Mr. Chambers, says they look suspicious, so goes and confronts him and says, is everything okay here or something to that effect? And Mr. Brown, the security guard, I think you, in your closing argument, we're talking about how he put on his best acting job. He said this on the stand, put on his best acting job to pretend like everything was just fine so that they could just continue on instead of uh, implementing a, a code that they had where they, that they could have used to sort of alert that something was wrong and then they could have actually locked down the building or called the police. I mean, done a number of things at that point. Well, and that was one of the interesting things because in jury selection, we had to be careful because we couldn't just take people who would not believe in taking them down because they had, according to their own protocol, if you didn't see a gun or a weapon and two security guards were present and, you know, this person was at risk to tenants or people, you should take them down, right? That's what you had to do. You need to handcuff them. So we had to make sure that the jurors we picked, that we would pick at least a few jurors who would believe that you would do that. Like I, as a man, my mental state would be to take them down, right? If I had a person with me, Jackson was not a big guy, and these two guys were really big. Right. I mean, you take them down. So we had one juror that I normally wouldn't pick, but he went to University of Illinois and the first day at school, his roommate came back drunk and went after him with a knife. And it didn't really bother me. He said, no, I just took the knife off him and I called security and they took him away and that was the end of it. So even though he was like a, uh, a well-educated, uh, he had an MBA and uh, was tied in with an insurance company, not liability insurance, but insurance brokerage. I thought, you know, we're going to take a chance on him because we had to get liability first. I thought he'd be conservative on damage. He ended up being the foreman, but uh, I thought he would be. But we needed a few people like that because that was our last ditch thing, not only trying to confront Jackson earlier, but at the last time following the protocol, he didn't show a gun. He passed a note saying, I have a gun. You got two people here. You got Chambers, the supervisor, saying he had been suspicious. He saw him get turned away. That was the time for them to act, we said. That was right. the handcuff them, and they didn't do it. So that that's why we wanted that juror to stay on, even though we thought he could hurt us a little bit on damages. And that, I would just say that was important because the security <laughs> guard, the way that issue was presented, more or less escorted the shooter yeah. up to his victims with the security guard swiping himself through the turnstile and then swiping the shooter through the turnstile. Right. Which were not permissible under their policies. 
So you have the security guard watching all this happen. You have this big security guard, you know, basically escorting him up uh, to a massacre. And so that, that identifying those type of jurors who would not appreciate that type of activity was, was critical. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. It seems like, as Yvonne mentioned in the in the opening facts, that um, I think on the 31st floor, they actually had to get off the elevator and get on a new elevator and, and actually ask somebody, where is this law firm? Um, so in the, and somebody had to direct them to where the law firm was. So it seemed like that might be another point where there could have been some intervention, uh, in order to stop all this from happening. Well, cause you know, at the end of the day, nothing's good going to happen if someone's going upstairs with a gun. Right. And it may not, it, nothing's good, maybe going to happen to you. And if you're going to witness him kill someone else, then either he's deranged and is going to be dead and his plans on being dead or he's going to take you because you're an eyewitness. So, I mean, if you, if someone lets you see their face, in my opinion, and they say they have a gun, most likely you're not going to come out of it alive because you're a witness. If they plan on living, you're a witness. So you got to do something. And that's important when you think about it for security purposes, because our experts always say, if someone says to you, come in the alley, I'm not going to hurt you. You think they're not going to hurt you when they say come in the alley? Right. No. You got to run, you got to scream, you got to do whatever you can to get away because you're probably not going to live. Chances are. So think about that in terms of how you live your life if stuff that ever happens. And we had some theories related to the elevators, like shutting down the elevator banks, calling upstairs to notify. And they could shut their doors. You know, so again, if, you know, this, 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 uh, 
code that you mentioned early on is critical for a number of reasons. Had they utilized it, you could have warned uh, the, the law offices, you could have shut down elevators, you could have done any number of things to try and protect those you contractually were obligated to protect. And they did none of that. So. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was particularly persuasive was the idea that, of course, I'm not a trained, believe it or not, I'm not a trained security professional. And so, you know, but I think you imagine one of those situations and 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 maybe it's a little harder to imagine uh, what you would rationally you would behave if someone came up to you and said I had a gun or whatever but I, but I thought one of the the things that really among other things that you all really pointed out that that I think had to be effective for the jury was that idea that okay let's say you 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 go through that turnstile or you're swiping him through or whatever you have these codes in place where at least you can notify people on the floors to lock their doors or to shut down the elevators to kind of um, to kind of protect themselves. Um, but I also thought it was very effective in bringing up all those different measures was, as you touched on earlier, Larry, was the fact that you, you all each represented a client. So you were able to really build off of each other and emphasize different points. And so I'm wondering if you guys can talk a little bit about, um, the decision to handle it that way, because, uh, you know, I assume another way you could have done it was just, you know, to kind of group together and represent everyone together and do your arguments together. And obviously what you did was very effective the way you decided to handle it. Well, yeah, we didn't want to lump them in together. We wanted them to have their own separate lawyer because that's important that you have a spokesperson on your behalf who's arguing your case, right? So, we thought that was important because we had three plaintiffs and uh, Dan Coton had the fourth plaintiff, the clerk. So we just thought that was particularly important in terms of how we were going to proceed with the case. And it turned out to be very, very good. And, and you know, when my wife, she usually doesn't come to watch my closings because she gets too nervous, but she can come down. And then after we're done closing, she ran up to my son and said, he did such a great job. I said, oh, well, how about me? (laughs) (laughs) And and he did do great. I mean, you all did. But I thought it was it it makes complete sense. You know, once I think about who your plaintiffs were, but. Uh, maybe I'm just I'm just so used to doing the podcast or approaching a regular case. You know, I was just ex- expecting to see that sort of plaintiffs open, defense open. You know, and it was. I thought what was really great is that you all obviously worked together and worked well together. But it also, it also did very, very much seem like you had you each had sort of your unique points that you were emphasizing. Obviously, your son James did had. Um, you know, he had a client who survived, who had, had suffered witnessing something. So I cannot imagine how horrible, and that really allowed him to kind of, to, to really focus on that perspective. Um, but I don't know if, like Steve, what did you think? For some reason I didn't see it coming and I was like, Oh, cool. <laughs> you, you mean, as far as representing the different, uh, each of them representing a different, uh, and, decedent and, or victim. Yeah. And doing like separate doing separate openings and separate, separate closings. Um, I don't yeah, know. I it's, guess it's just been a while since I've seen that. 
No, I, I think it's I think it's a great idea and it give, gives you a chance to, you know, sort of really I, I mean, like you were just saying, Joe, I mean, each person has their own story and um, each victim has their own story and deserves to have their own person telling them that story. Uh, I've, I've, we've seen it done. And I think actually Tommy and Adam Malone talked about doing it on a case where um, there was a loss of consortium claim where one of them represented the loss of consortium claim and the other represented the injury claim. Hilary and I have done that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, I think think it's a great idea. In this case in particular, the interesting thing was that uh, Mr. Hoover, uh, he was a high wage earner, but he was older than Mr. McKenna, right? Okay. So he didn't have like the relationship, frankly, with his family that like McKenna. McKenna gave up earning money for the most part. He wasn't earning that much money because he wanted to be involved with his second family. And right. His first wife had died, so this was his second wife, and he had a baby with, with her. And so he sort of gave up earning much money. And so what was going to be valued more? The, the guy who earned a lot more money but was older and didn't have the relationship with the family as compared to the guy who gave all that up. Right. You know, to to have a relationship. So, of course, you know, at the end of the day, in terms of the economic, Hoover got the economic piece, but McKenna got more money as he was younger as well. But because of his loss of society and companionship, because that was more important to him with the second family. So that was interesting, almost made it a little bit of a conflict as well, because I have to argue that's more important. And Larry's kind of argue the economic piece, and that it all worked out fairly. Right, that's a great point. Yeah, it, it was unique because we also got to uh, decide. First of all, debate you know the different issues that were most important from the post orders and so forth, and then we could split up different aspects of the liability when we argued it. So I, I thought it was effective. It was. It, I haven't done that many times. Joe and I did it once other t- one other time with a consortium case, and uh, in, in another significant case, but. But this was interesting. It was unique to hear different perspectives, James, James's opinions uh, on how to approach things, things that were relevant to him, you know, as a younger man than me or, or Joe. And it was, it was a very, very uh, great approach the way we were able to collectively do it. The judge was careful to address cumulative issues. So we had to be, right. you know, a bit ginger with that. Uh, but but uh, I thought it worked effectively. And then how did you handle witnesses? Did you each take a crack at the witness or did you split up the witnesses? No, no, we each took a crack as much as the judge would allow us. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> right. The thing about Ruth Lee was she was Jewish and her parents were Holocaust survivors. So her psychologist talked about survivors killed because they survived. Yeah. Now, she brought out Mr. McKenna forewarning him, this guy's here, he's got a gun, he wants to see you. So they went out and they were holding hands and that's when the shooter shot him in the head. Mm. So yeah. that superimposed upon her own emotional distress is the parents' survivor's guilt, which according to the psychologist shows up on an fMRI. This will show up and de- demonstrate Indeed, that it is like an organic effect that survivor's guilt is passed on. Yeah. Wow. The, so actually like <laughs> visible on scans. Well, she had, she had, she had ringing in her ear that she couldn't get rid of. 
Right. So, you know, and it really tells a lot about your client, Joe, uh, Mr. McKenna, because uh, as you said, you know, he was in a meeting, I think, in one of the back conference rooms and he could have, you know, hidden, he could have run, you know, tried to get away. But he he thought, you know, there's an upset person with a with a gun. He was going to go try and calm the situation, bring it under control. And unfortunately, he uh, lost his life because of that. Um, I actually told Jackson, Jackson said, because he's looking at all the names on the on the door, which ones are your partners? And he said, I have no partners. I'm by myself. Just mm -hmm. so if you're going to take it out on anyone, yeah. take it out on me. Don't, yeah. don't hurt anyone else. Yeah, I, I wanted to, I mean, there's so much to talk about in this case, but I wanted to back up for a second because, uh, you know, one of the, the um, well, let's back up because because uh, Mr. Jackson, I, I think, you know, Vaughn was being very nice and calling him an inventor, an inventor. I mean, he was a truck driver who had an idea for a portable toilet for truck drivers. Um, and so he went to Mr. McKenna and asked him for, you know, to see if he could get this patented. Mr. McKenna, I think for $800 or something like that, did, went to the patent office, searched it, saw that there was already patents filed on this exact same thing, came back and said, sorry, you know, you can't get this patented because it's already been patented. And then somehow that became to Mr. Jackson that he had somehow stolen this, uh, maybe done some deal on his own, which was absolutely not true. But I mean, it does bring up the point and the defense tried their best at it in it. But it's a defense you see in a lot of these negligent security cases where, you know, this wasn't like just a random crime or a crime of opportunity where somebody, you know, saw an open window. So they break in and then somebody gets hurt. I mean, this was a targeted crime for Mr. McKenna. I mean, Mr. Jackson was going there to harm Mr. McKenna and whatever other lawyers he could. And so, of course, the defense tried to make the argument, sort of a causation argument that, you know, Mr. Jackson was going to get Mr. McKenna no matter what. If it hadn't been here, it would be, be somewhere else. And that can be an effective defense, uh, you know, in sort of saying there's only so much you can do to stop somebody who is definitely, you know, who wants to harm somebody specific. Um, and I'm just wondering, how did you guys uh, approach that defense and and uh, obviously handle it very well? Uh, well, th that was a big part of their argument. Uh, again, they wanted to, Joe mentioned it earlier, they wanted to make the time period small, say you didn't, you know, he had just basically went right up the escalators straight to try and check in. So finding that footage where he was there earlier was very critical to show he had been around for a while and for hours and there was opportunity. Um, the other thing is he, he was turned away and he left. You know, he initially approached, didn't have his name and he left. So I thought that was uh, demonstrative of, of what effective security would do. If someone does not have the credentials and you don't let them in, they turn away because they're nowhere near the target. So um, I, I thought that, again, it was it was uh, we, we had some video footage at the security desk that showed Mr. Jackson coming up the last bank of escalators, going up to the desk, uh, sort of shuffling around for his ID and then being turned away and leaving and coming right coming right back. So it sort of showed, I thought, uh, that what they were saying was not really true if you really follow the procedures and, and uh, didn't just allow access. And it was especially critical, I thought, with, with Chambers, when you saw um, Joe Jackson walk up to Brown, Chambers encounter them, and then saw 
Brown and Jackson walk through the turnstiles toward the elevator bay. And a couple of things. One is, uh, you know, we did very well in our closing argument. And as a result, the judge was not going to let in all the crimes that uh, Jackson had committed, you know, murder, all that stuff. And then after our closing argument, she then said she's going to instruct the jury on all his violations of the statutes, murder, attempt murder, you know, all that stuff. So the jury can consider that as to his percentage of fault. And their whole thing is it's his, he's the sole proximate cause. It's just him. And if they get sole proximate cause, you're done. You lose the case totally. Right. Or they're trying to get a high percentage. So that that was the hard part of that. The other interesting thing about this case was there was a fellow named Morris, Morris Danzig. He was in there with Mr. McKenna. So after he, he, he Mr. McKenna was shot, he came out and was trying to save him. He was a medic, uh, was in the Marines at Iwo Jima. He lost his leg in Iwo Jima. So he was trying to save Mr. McKenna, and Jackson was threatening him. And he said, you know, you don't threaten me. I'm a Marine. I'm, you know, you don't leave your uh, people behind, and I'm not leaving McKenna behind. So he was trying to save McKenna's life. And then the police came up, and there was a shootout. And uh, Danzing was trying to save McKenna because he still was alive, even though unconscious, and he was holding a compress to his head. And so uh, the police are shooting Jackson, Jackson shooting at the police, and Danzig saying, you know, shoot higher. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. You're a tough old bird. Yeah. Yeah, really. Wow. Well, um, speaking of the defenses, I, I wasn't sure. I saw this mentioned in the closing, and it's I couldn't figure out if if this was this was a point you all were rightfully making about this is basically all the security guards did, or if this was actually a defense that they were trying to describe the security guards of more of as just like sort of greeters. You know, that's what they're trying to say. They were, they were greeters. That's all they do. But we're using their posted orders against them. And, you know, they're basically they're saying, Hey, person comes up to you with a gun and they're saying, I got a gun, take me upstairs. You've got to do that. In fact, that's what they had experts to come in and testify. If someone says they have a gun, you got to just assume they have a gun and just take them upstairs. In fact, one of the most dramatic points of cross of one of their experts was like what he calls himself a talking head. He's on Fox TV and all these programs about security issues like this. And he's and he testified that if someone gives you a piece of paper, says they got a gun, you got to follow their advice no matter what no matter what and our experts were saying the opposite what i was saying if someone says they got a gun just come in the alley someone says i have a gun take me upstairs nothing's good going to happen to that so i asked mr mcgooey on cross-examination well let me ask you sir if someone says i have a bomb to blow up the whole building right do you just take them upstairs to the penthouse let them blow up the whole building so he stopped. He didn't know what to say. <laughs> then he said, yes. And the jury just turned and shook their head. Because, you know, there's no, I mean, how do you do that? Right. You just willy-nilly. And now picture it with Chambers and Brown, with this guy, right? He doesn't show the bomb. 
Do you just willy-nilly take them upstairs, two big guys, whatever? Are you going to risk everybody in the building just because he says he's got a bomb? Well, you're going with him too, right? Right. <laughs> well, that Magui, yeah, he didn't know what, he didn't know how to answer that. And he delayed, he delayed, he delayed. And then he finally said yes. Hmm. Well, and so, I mean, you know, just speaking of their experts, I'm surprised their experts even said that in the first place, that because that sort of seems the opposite to me of what you expect security to do. But um, how did their experts handle, you know, th- these contracts and these procedures, these codes that weren't followed for security? Well, they just, well, they were saying they didn't know of the code. You know, there was a code. It was under workplace violence. And they were saying that didn't apply. Well, if it didn't apply to this situation, then it should have. You needed to have a code. Right. You needed to have something that you convey there's trouble a group, right? How do you just, two big guys do nothing? Now, under their own uh, post orders, they were to do something. If he didn't show the weapon, they were to take him down. But Brown didn't say anything to Chambers. Chambers is suspicious. He was also supposed to follow through, see it through. So Chambers was supposed to follow that, see what they're doing. He should, he should have seen he double swiped him. He saw he was turned away earlier because he didn't have an ID. So there are all kinds of factors that went into before they got to the elevator bay. <clears throat> but the principal thing in my mind is, if someone says they got a gun, take me upstairs. Someone says they got a gun, take me to the alley. You can't. Right. You're seeing their face. Someone breaks into their house and they don't have a mask on, right? Yeah. You're not likely going to make it, right? Because they're going to kill you. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz, or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal technology services. uh, Give them a try. 
You pointed out, I was just going to say, and you've mentioned a couple of times how big these guys were, but I mean, I, I think we should say, I mean, Mr. Brown, the security guard was six foot two, 300 pounds. And Mr. Chambers was six foot four, 270 pounds. And I think Mr. Jackson was like 170 pounds or something. Um, yeah. 160 pounds. Right, right. So very much, much smaller. And he, ha he hadn't shown his gun. I mean, he said he had one. Um, you know, and, and, and I guess on top of that, I was thinking is that Mr. Brown, you made the point in the closing about how he had left his post, um, you know, to in order to escort him upstairs, which he absolutely wasn't supposed to do under their own policies and procedures. So that's something you would think that he, even if Chambers, you know, uh, addressed them and said, is something wrong or is, is everything OK? And they say, yes, he should something should go off in his head to see that one of his guys is leaving his post. And right. escorting this guy upstairs, that that's not right. And the guy's been hanging around there for hours. He got turned yeah. away, right? Yeah. What's going on here? Yeah. Something. They should have. But the important thing, they were trying to get jurors to be afraid. To say, you know, if someone's got a gun, he, what are you going to do? He, you know, he's going to shoot you. But if you're going to do anything, you do it on a busy third floor where there's all kinds of people. We showed in the tapes all these people around. Yeah. At what time he's not going to shoot someone, Right. He really wants his, he wants this lawyer. He wants to take the lawyer out. So right. he's, he's going to, you know, he's not going to want to shoot someone here. He'll never take the lawyer out. Yeah. It's also pretty dramatic to show, you know, their claims of the, the bag on the gun and the way it was hidden and concealed. It just, it looked suspicious in a courtroom, you know, when to see it the way they were showing, you know, they had different descriptions. It was sideways, it was front. And either way, you know, a guy who has his hand inside, of something walking up to a security guard looks suspicious. Yeah, when I yeah. when I was cross examining Brown, I had him show me how he had the Manila envelope. They were like claiming the gun was in the Manila envelope when he was near the concierge. So I'm saying, oh, do you have it like this or do you have it like that? Do you think that might have been suspicious to Chambers? <laughs> oh, <God>. right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when he's over at the concierge desk and I'm playing around with the middle envelope, he's telling me how the middle envelope was because their client claimed there's a gun in there. So, you know, I mean, I think that's suspicious. Yeah. I don't think many people walk around with a manila envelope over their hand as they're approaching a concierge. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And then on the code thing, I thought it was pretty effective to for the jury to appreciate just how common it is. Like in emergency rooms, uh, they will say code red or just to alert security to come to the ER because something's happening. They don't say there's a shooter or a problem. They say code red. When you call, uh, when your alarm goes off at home and the security calls your house, you're supposed to say certain numbers if it's okay and not say those numbers if it's not. Again, that's right. A secret yeah. way of responding that even everyday people who have security systems at their homes can be familiar with. Yeah. So think, yeah. yeah no. it, 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 there are a lot of little nuanced ways of relaying to a jury that that this is not out of the realm of reason what we're saying, that you should be your security company, you're supposed to ensure safety of individuals, and they did nothing but walk the guy up. Uh, right. And yeah. I'm so glad you said that, because even when you said it now, and I imagine I had to do the same thing for the jury, it it triggered like I remembered when I worked in retail in a sports store, you know, in college, we had training about what to do if there was 
an, uh, like an active shooter in the store or like a security situation, what we were supposed to say over the intercom, where we were supposed to go and what we were supposed to do. I mean, many of us are trained in those scenarios who are not responsible for security. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, we actually, you could hear on the intercom when they were telling people about uh, staying in their, their suites, right? You could hear it on the tape of Jackson's up there. Right. You could hear that on the tape. Right. Because there was a receptionist under the desk calling 911. So you could hear it on the 911 tape, the building calling out over the Internet. Uh, there was one little trick to that, however, is if reception called up to this downstairs, called up to the office, apparently the lock on their door was broken. So the theory that we said that they should have called up to warn receptionist to lock down your suite that could have been a problem right? i see because the lock on the door of their suite was apparently broken so you know we sort of danced around that a little bit and said if it, we don't know for sure there were witnesses saying it was fixed or witnesses saying it wasn't so it was all over the place we said well if it wasn't that's their problem too so, yeah right right <laughs> these people could have been forewarned you know do something there's other another thing I wanted to mention uh, that that is kind of lost is sort of the strategy and, J and Joe mastermind this because of this apportionment issue uh, where we have to hit a defendant for 25 percent or more. Uh, we had in this case management company, an owner, and a security company involved. So um, in thinking through the ultimate end of the case, which really Joe saw this at the beginning. Uh, the defense really was aimed at getting under a sole proximate cause or at a minimum under 25% for Ally Barton. And uh, by resolving the case with the management company and owner, it left Ally Barton more likely to receive a percentage of 25% or greater. It also left the clients with, I think it was about seven and a half million in their pockets going into trial. And and in Illinois, based on a case that actually Joe was a part of, um, you cannot list a settling tortfeasor on the verdict form. So again, we would have had two additional defendants on the, actually, I think it's three, the way they had structured ownership on the verdict form, which would have been more individuals to divide liability against and more likely for Ally Barton to have less than 25%. Right. Look at it. Jackson got 60%. So if we had two defendants, Ally Barton and the owner of the building in the case, if they put them at 20-20 uh, and 60 to Jackson, then we would have just had mostly several liability except for the economic loss. So that why, that's why it was important to get the owner out. They didn't know that. We're, t we're telling them we're trying to case against all of them to get them to come up. I think they came up with 12 and a half. Yeah. Owner of the building. And then at the end of the day, they, the uh, Allied Park offered five uh, during trial. And then right before the jury came back, they offered 10 to settle all the cases. And we, we turned them down. Right. And, and just so our, our listeners understand, I mean, uh, what we're talking about is uh, on the verdict form, 
there was a finding that Joe Jackson, the shooter, was 60% responsible and Allied Barton was 40% responsible. And before we were, uh, before the show, you were explaining to us that under Illinois law, um, that if, if a defendant is found more than 25% responsible, then it's joint and several for the whole verdict, right? Correct. 25% or more. Yeah. Right. And and if it's less than that, then it becomes uh, several, except for the economic damages, um, which uh, yeah, I mean, I guess so, like lost uh, lost income or something like that would still be um, joint, but everything else would be uh, yeah, that was be a percentage. Smallest part of the whole verdict was the economic piece, so it was important for us to get Ally Barton over twenty five percent, and we did that. And there was fear that if we didn't settle out at the building with having two of them on there, it turned out to probably be true. Because if Jackson was 60, then they would have split it probably 2020. And then we would have gotten, for the most of the verdict, several liability. So right, quite a problem. Yeah. yeah so, and, and, you know, we didn't really break out the, the verdict. So Mr. Uh, the, the verdict for Mr. McKenna was uh, 14.6 million. The verdict for Mr. Hoover was 11 million. And the verdict for Mr. Goodson uh, uh, um, was 2.8 million. And I think he was an elderly man. It sounded like um, yes. in his, in, in his seventies and he was a mail clerk. Yes. Um, and then, and then Miss Lieb, her verdict was 5 million, 50,000. But I, I wanted to ask you about how uh, wrongful death claims, it, how you value a wrongful death claim in, under Illinois law, uh, because it looks like it's it's based on who the heirs are and who the beneficiaries are of the estate. Where in Georgia, where the way where we practice, it's the value of the life from the perspective of the decedent. Um, so talk a little bit about how you how you handle damages uh, in in a case like this. Well, so, you know, there's also loss of enjoyment of life, which was a big factor here in terms of compensation. But one thing we didn't have in this case that we do have now is grief and sorrow. So okay. currently in Illinois, we have initial element of damage, which was grief and sorrow, which is a significant factor in terms of wrongful death damage. Yeah. But we didn't have it in, in this particular case. So, you know, it was, it was they, these were large verdicts considering the elements of damage at this time. I mean, there are some of the higher verdicts in Illinois, certainly, and without grief and sorrow. If we had grief and sorrow in this case, it would have been much, much larger. The largest element of damage, since we've got grief and sorrow in the wrongful death case, is grief and sorrow. So we didn't have it here. So when you have grief and sorrow, that's it, so the reason I ask is because so Georgia's wrongful death law, our measure of damages is the value of the person's life from the perspective of the decedent. So what their life would have been worth to them. And so for in Illinois, so for your grief and sorrow, that's the the survivor's grief and, and sorrow. How's that measure? That's the grief and sorrow of the survivors. I mean, under this case and cases like this, they tell the jury, you can't award for all the tears and all the crying, all that suffering. You know, they don't get compensated for that. Right. But now the, the people, the survivors, the dependents, they get all their grief and sorrow, all the crying, all the visiting the cemetery, all that now comes into evaluating damages, which is uh, the most significant factor. I tell you, in the wrongful death case we're trying now, which we didn't have, which is now the law in Illinois. 
And the heirs have what's called loss of society also, which is loss of love, air, companionship, yeah, guidance. You know, so so Joe was mentioning Mr. McKenna earlier having a young child, and there were some great video depictions of the relationship that he had with the son. And they were they were very demonstrative of example of showing what the child lost going forward. So uh, it can be very pretty powerful. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Yeah, and you made a great point earlier, Joe, talking about how your client, Mr. McKenna, had had he sort of foregone earning more money, which he could have done uh, in order to spend more time with his family. And um, and, and you know, it reminded me of how you know it, when we do our closing arguments, a lot of times we you know, like to tell the jury that, um, you know, we're not the, the sum of our paychecks, um, you know, that how much money you earn in life is really the least way to value your life. It's all the time you spend with your family, all the time you spend, you know, doing stuff with the people you love is how you really, um, you know, should value life. So I just, uh, I, I really, uh, it's just another great point about your client, uh, Joe, the way you, the way you represented that. I do think that that, that's just one thing that that I think is weird in Georgia. I, th- I think compared to other states, Georgia has a has um, good measure of damages for wrongful death. But I do think it's always weird for our clients to hear that their own sorrow and grief is not really something that the jury can consider. You know, I think that they're, you know, what they ultimately want is justice. And and but I do think it's just kind of. I think about how many times our clients are surprised, Steve, when we tell them that they're really not going to be able to get too much into the loss that they've suffered by losing this right. person. Yeah, yeah. harsh. Yeah. It, it can be, yeah. it can make for awkward times at trial because, you know, you really want to, to have your witnesses talk about, you know, what the, the decedent was like and, and how they enjoyed life. But it's hard to tell those stories for somebody who's from the family member of not when they were there and not putting themselves in it, but it's, uh, so it, it, at times it can be awkward. Um, but, uh, but for the most part, I think, um, you know, uh, most people get it. Um, and, um, and, and it really is a good way to, uh, to, to do a wrongful death case under the way we have it. But, but the way evidence goes in can be a little bit awkward at times. You know, that, that reminds me of, uh, another significant aspect of this case was, uh, it had kind of gone a longer than we longer than we expected, and we went late into the evening sometimes with some witnesses, and uh, and Joe, after closing arguments, got on a plane to meet his grandkids down in Disney World, <laughs> <laughs> and awesome. uh, he was he was very confident we had won the case. He was very confident with the result. Uh, I think he mentioned they started to offer, I think they got up to an, an additional $10 million offer while the jury was out. And uh, thanks to the strength of the client said, no, we'll ride with the verdict. Uh, yeah, I think by the time he landed, he might've gotten noticed that uh, we had a nice verdict. Uh, I, I was, I was going to ask Joe, what ride were you on when you got the verdict? I mean, <laughs> oh, no, I got it down there. <laughs> that night, but I was talking to them in the meantime, on yeah. my way down there because I was telling him my client wanted to get the verdict. Some others were afraid and they, you know, were talking like compromise. So we ended up hanging together and uh, it worked out. You know, one question I wanted to ask you, cause I, I've 
tried a, a couple of cases where there was a long delay between when the incident happened and um, and you get to try the case. Did you did you address that with the jury that there had been an 11 year delay or like maybe during voir dire? Or did anybody have any issues with the fact that there had been such a delay? And, and if so, how did you handle it? Yeah, the judge gave him an instruction initially saying that, you know, this has taken a long time to get to trial, but you shouldn't consider that for or against any of the parties because of that. So she she mentioned that. We we would do that in a case where you want to appeal and take some yeah. to get to trial. Yeah. Just while we're talking about it, um, for jury selection, other than what we talked about earlier that you guys had an eye out for in terms of how people were going to address this issue of, of, you know, of taking this guy down, um, was there anything special, whether through, you know, focus grouping or just thinking about the case that you were um, looking for or not looking for in your jurors, other than the usual? No, no, we had done a, a, a focus group through, uh, you know, one, one of those survey groups that did a survey of it, and they gave us an idea of liability, strengths and weaknesses, strengths against, you know, Brown, Chambers, you know, each of the entities, the owner or security company, plus damages, they did a, uh, gave us a, basically, what jurors responded on these, these surveys, what they thought, so. We had an idea that, and the stronger case was against the security company, which is one of the reasons why it made sense to take the owner of the building out as well. So uh, we got we maximized what we could against the owner of the building, uh, got some money, and then uh, rolled it out against security company, which was all confirmed on our uh, focus group. Gotcha. Yeah. Did you uh, get a chance to talk to the jurors afterwards, and did they tell you anything as far as what they – what worked or what didn't or what they liked or what they didn't? Well, I was in Disneyland. Right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, you were, <laughs> you were on Space Mountain. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we talked to them a little bit. It was late, actually, when so, so some of them ran out of there. But but they just thought, I think they just thought that uh, escorting him up there uh, to, to commit basically a massacre. Yeah. Uh, and to see it on video, I thought was pretty powerful. When you have a supervisor there, sees a problem, you know, takes the step of asking, is something wrong? And then he sort of followed them a little bit and then just turned away. And he said something like, uh, well, I was going to ask him in a few minutes what that was all about. I was going to follow up a few minutes later. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So, oh, that was the time to intervene, not to figure out what yeah. the problem was after something has occurred. Oh, so I, I think uh, they really hammered uh, Chambers yeah. Or his his inaction, you know, again, as a supervisor, watching the guy come up there, be turned away, all of the things we kind of talked about. You know, one thing I, I, I didn't see when, when the when the shooting started, what happened to uh, Mr. Brown? Oh, he took off. He, he just off. He, he left. Yeah. He saved his own skin, at, yeah. you know, for the people he was supposed to be protecting. Yeah. 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 And then he went home. Yeah. Mm. Oof. Uh, uh. Well, um, by the way, I don't know if it came out. Jackson had chains and locks. Right. He had a lot of things that you would think a security guard uh, should have picked up on. Again, the envelope with his hand in it. Yeah. Well, that was all. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and 
I'm just thinking about how many different buildings, like I've gone in for depositions and stuff like that. And our building that, you know, our building in Atlanta, at least the one we used to be in and just like how many hoops I had to jump through without having a manila envelope over my hand and <laughs> a suspicious right. bag and yeah. chains yeah, and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention the jurors came through security every morning. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, so I know there had been an, a delay, but this had to have been a very high profile case as far as that your jurors, I, I would imagine all of your jurors had heard about this incident. Well, once uh, you hear about it, then yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, because I mean, I'm, I'm sure it was, it, all, it had to be all over the news that there right. had been. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, would, how, how was that handled? Was that uh, anybody, had, had all of your jurors heard about what happened? Uh, vaguely, you know, I mean, there's so much violence, unfortunately, in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Passage of time also. Yeah. It was yeah. not a factor. Juries get excused. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, Joe and Larry, this has been just great. Uh, um, is there anything else that um, we haven't told our listeners about, about the um, – uh, McKenna versus Allied Barton security services case that uh, you'd like to, for them to know? No, I just think the important thing and the important lesson here is, as I said before, if someone says, you know, come in the alley with me, I don't, I'm not going to do you any harm. I've got a gun, uh, take me X, Y, Z, get my car. You know, the best thing is to take off. And as, they, as our experts talked about, you zigzag. It's hard for anybody to really mm -hmm. shoot someone. Even yeah. people, you know, there's nervousness. There's a lot of things going on when you got to shoot someone. So you just run, zigzag it, fall, get up, just do whatever you can, but get away. Don't follow their advice. They're going to hurt you. If you can see their face and they say they got a weapon or you see a weapon, you know, it's unlikely you're going to come out unharmed. So, you know, well, you know I'm when you were saying that, I was I was thinking about that because I, I've got two daughters and uh, and um, you know so we we talk about self defense and I mean it is trained you know for self defense if somebody's trying to take you, uh, you do whatever you can to not go I mean fight scream Great. yell everything call attention you know do, do not get in the car and go because that's when the percentages for something bad happening is when you go with them so yeah. why the security guard would go with them you just it's hard to understand. Yeah. 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 Um, well, listen, guys, I, I really appreciate it. This has been just a, a great show. Let me remind everybody that uh, we've been talking to Joe Power and Larry Rogers, uh, Joe Power Jr. and Larry Rogers Jr. from uh, Power and Ro or Power Rogers. And you can look them up at powerrogers.com. Uh, and we have been talking about the case of McKenna versus Allied Barton Security Services. Uh, which was uh, a verdict for on behalf of four individuals for a total verdict of $33,450,000. Uh, guys, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having us. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? 
Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.